Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. I am back after a couple of days off. I uh, confessed uh, this morning, I sat down to write my newsletter about uh, about July 4th, and I started writing the newsletter with the words uh, American Madness, and then I thought about deleting them because it just seemed too dark for the day after July 4th. Because let's be honest about it, most Americans spent yesterday you know, having fun, you know, going to parades, fireworks, picnics with, without having them uh, interrupted by mass murders, right? I mean, there were moments of gratitude, patriotism, people remembering what the promise of America is. But it is hard to talk about this particular national holiday without noting that yesterday we had the 309th mass shooting here this year, 309 with parade goers in Highland Park, Illinois, of all places, aged eight to 85, had their bodies blown apart by a high-powered weapon of war wielded by a uh, 22-year-old, how do I even describe him? Just sick fuck rapper. And the problem is we're going to talk about it, you know, we'll forget about it soon enough. I mean, we'll go back into the rhetorical doom loop. And uh, I started off by telling our guest that, <laughs> that I just apologize in advance because I'm always in a really bad mood after one of these. Adam White joins us again. And Adam reminded me that we had previously had a podcast the day after a shooting. So you knew I was in a crappy mood, Adam. So <laughs> happy Tuesday, I guess. Yeah, I can't remember. It was the last one was the day after the shooting. But I know you and I have sadly puzzled, uh, chewed on, reflected on these issues before. And, and sadly, we will again. I will say, Charlie, this it's ironic that we're speaking today. Today's my first day back in Washington mm-hmm. after our family's annual two-week getaway to uh, Wisconsin. So who better to talk with than uh, Wisconsin's very own? <laughs> well, you were actually in Mequon. You're like a few miles away from me. Most people don't even know where Mequon is. And you were here and we were Starcrossed podcast guest. Okay, so Adam is a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. He also co-directs the C. Boyden Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University. So you have got to have been a really busy guy after this Supreme Court term. Put this in some context for me. It feels as if this last term was, to say that it's consequential is putting it mildly, I just can't remember a term with this many cases that set precedents and overturned precedents. Am I wrong about that? Where does this rank? If you're wrong about it, then I am too, because that's that's how it seems to me this year. You know, at AEI and at George Mason, I focus on the Supreme Court and on administrative law. And and of course, that became a big issue uh, last week and a big issue throughout the Supreme Court's year and the administrative state, I mean, and it will be for years to come. But of course, there was the Dobbs case and and, and so many other cases. Uh, This really does seem like a generational turning point in the uh, the court's history. There have been moments like this before. The Supreme Court in the mid-20th century pivoted towards sort of a more progressive outlook. And then years after that, Another turning point where progressives had to decide whether they were for judicial restraint or judicial, whatever you want to call it, activism, engagement, whatever you want to call it. Um, And we've had moments like this before, and now we seem at a similar turning point, not just the turn from the sort of late 20th century uh, progressive court really giving way to the 21st century conservative court, but you're going to have, we're seeing already interesting arguments among the conservative justices themselves over what it means to be a conservative Supreme Court. Is this an activist court? I I was going to save this question for a little bit later, but on Dobbs, it was interesting that the Chief Justice, uh, John Roberts, tried to carve out a centrist, um, quote-unquote, conservative incrementalist position, and nobody else joined him. So 
I guess the question is, is this a conservative court or has this become an activist court? And of course, people are going to yeah. answer that based on what they mean by activist. If, if you like, like I believe that the Constitution needs to be uh, applied in terms of its original written meaning, well, then my inclination is to say, well, it's not activist if they're just going with the words of the Constitution. But I think maybe whatever one makes the word activist, it's certainly a confident conservative court. As you mentioned, the conservative justices did not want to go with Chief Justice Roberts's sort of more moderated, more restrained approach to sustaining, affirming the Mississippi abortion statute, but not quite overdoing, overturning Roe altogether at this point. So it's the court is certainly confident uh, and it's energized. And I think to a lot of people, it will be seen as activist. I don't see it that way, but others do. Right now, I think the big debates for the remainder of the summer going into the beginning of the next term in articles by Ezra Klein and others go to the question about whether the court is, is a legitimate court or not. And of course, I think it is, but that's the argument that we're going to have. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's come back to this. And I, I want to talk about the gun ruling in, in light of what happened yesterday, as well as the big EPA ruling. But let's stick with Dobbs for a moment, uh, because you look back at much of the punditry about all of this, and there were volumes and volumes and volumes of, you know, columns written by people saying, don't worry about uh, Roe versus Wade being completely overturned. No, they obviously wouldn't do this. You might remember back in 2018, uh, Jeffrey Tubin mm -hmm. tweeted out, Anthony Kennedy is retiring. Abortion will be illegal in 20 states in 18 months. And lots of folks laughed at him about that. Kathleen Parker, who's a Washington Post columnist, wrote, if Chicken Little and Cassandra had a baby, they'd name him Jeffrey Tubin. Uh, and then she wrote a column in July 2018, and it was headlined, Calm Down, Roe versus Wade is not going anywhere, talking about the unloosing of hysteria upon the land. And then she wrote, what new justice would want to be that man or woman who forevermore would be credited with upending settled law and causing massive societal upheaval? As for other conservative justices, only Clarence Thomas would likely vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. Susan Collins, one of the most important voices in this discussion, echoed the thoughts of close-to-the-court sources who told me that neither Chief Justice John Roberts nor Neil Gorsuch would likely want to wade into that swamp and weigh in on a Roe versus Wade reversal. All right, that was then. What changed, Adam White? What changed between that column in 2018, and what just happened? Well, for starters, you, by the way, you can count me among those who didn't <laughs> expect to see Roe v. Wade overturned quite so soon. I mean, to be candid, I was, mm -hmm. I was hoping that it would be, but I didn't think it would be. And I thought the most likely outcome for this Dobbs case would be the one that Chief Justice Roberts had sketched out, which had no takers to his left or to his right. I'm sure a lot has changed since the Kennedy retirement. But I think one of the things to keep in mind, and we saw this at oral argument in the Dobbs case, uh, and you saw it in the draft opinion when that was leaked, and we saw it in the final opinion from Justice Alito, was that the conservatives on the court simply were not convinced that there was any tenable, sustainable, principled line to be drawn that could, stopping short of overturning Roe. The idea of maintaining some kind of undue burden standard from Planned Parenthood versus Casey, but without the fetal viability line that that case had drawn, the justices just didn't see any kind of principled constitutional line that they could draw short of just announcing that Roe v. Wade was wrongly decided. 
Now, I, I quite like Chief Justice Roberts's opinion. I thought it was a, a very good sort of institution-minded discussion of the court's limited role in deciding cases and only deciding issues that are needed to decide the actual cases. Um, but I also quite like Justice Alito's opinion, uh, his majority opinion, which really, I think, cast doubt on the suggestion that there was any kind of middle ground that would be both, forget politically viable, but just principled in terms that were really drawn from the Constitution and not just conjured up by judges themselves. Except the, judge, the judges always come up with uh, with whatever they want, right? I mean, they can make the, the decision as broad or as narrow. Uh, I mean, this would not have been that unusual for them. I mean, the argument that we have to go to the absolutist position has not always been the norm for this court, right? That's right, and it won't happen in every case. I think what was certainly was important to Justice Alito, because he emphasized this in his majority opinion, was that neither side of the case was really calling for the middle ground. Uh, defenders of the Mississippi statute, they admitted that, yeah, you could sustain the law without overturning Roe v. Wade. It wasn't their lead argument. And the critics of the Mississippi statute, both within Mississippi and in the Justice Department and the Biden administration, they too sort of cast doubt on the suggestion that you could really have a viable, sustainable middle ground. Now, Chief Justice Roberts's opinion was, of course, uh, suggested, no, you could and should find a middle ground. Uh, but I'd say, Charlie, it's not always easy, uh, especially when you're arguing either for defense of a precedent like Roe or Planned Parenthood versus Casey and arguing these things need to be defended versus those who were arguing that the Constitution's text simply had no explicit basis for a constitutional right to abortion and there wasn't sort of a, a natural compromise position to achieve. If that is the case, if it's very, very clear that there is no explicit constitutional right to abortion and therefore you needed to overturn 50 years of what had been regarded as settled law and ignore stare decisis, etc. Et why wouldn't you say the exact same thing about gay marriage or the right to contraception or overturning state laws criminalizing sodomy, none of which are explicitly guaranteed in the Constitution? So using that logic, which Clarence Thomas did, wouldn't that argue for overturning all of that? That's a good question and a, and a hard question and a daunting question. Which is why I asked it. <laughs> uh, what better way to start the week? I did. I tried to grapple with this myself a little bit a, a few weeks ago when the draft opinion leaked. Uh, I wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal chewing on this a bit because it's true, sort of the logic of the constitutional analysis, what does the Constitution say or not say, it does point towards uh, precedents like Griswold, which was the, the, the right to privacy um, the, encompassing a right to contraception. Also, the Texas sodomy statute in North v. Texas. The, I'd say the same-sex marriage precedent, as I said in the op-ed, is a little different because there the court rested its analysis not just on the sort of 14th Amendment privacy issues that we saw in the abortion cases, um, but also it was explicitly grounded in the 14th Amendment's Equal Protection Clause. So I'd set that one aside. Uh, and furthermore, I'd, I'd say, and this is, I think, the key point, the stare decisis analysis for same-sex marriage, I think is profoundly different than the stare decisis arguments around abortion. Uh, undoing the, the Obergefell decision, which I was a critic of when it was decided, it would have profound, profoundly disruptive effects, not just looking forward at what your rights are going forward, 
but it would profoundly sort of destabilize or cast a shadow over pre-existing family relationships, legal relationships, any number of things. Well, we've already established that the court is willing to do that, though. And the language that Alito used in Dobbs is identical to the language that he used in his dissent on Obergefell, right? That the court has said that to prevent five unelected justices from opposing their personal vision of liberty upon the American people, the court has held that liberty under the due process clause should be understood to protect only those rights that are deeply rooted in the nation's history and tradition. And it is beyond dispute that the right to same-sex marriage is not among those rights. So considering that in Dobbs, the court basically said, yes, we understand that we are creating massive dislocation and in throwing out a right that millions of women have relied upon for decades, they've shown a willingness to do that. So I guess I'm not clear in the distinction you're drawing between the court's willingness to do that in Dobbs and your belief that they would be unwilling to do that, applying the exact same legal analysis to same-sex marriage. I think the difference is the two parts of the opinion, right? In Dobbs, the beginning is the constitutional analysis, right? What does the 14th Amendment say or not say? What does it mean or not mean? The second part of the opinion, though, is important too. It's the stare decisis consideration. And, and of course, in Dobbs, Justice Alito walks through the, the various factors that judges look at when deciding whether to, to, to maintain even a, a, a dubious, as they see it, judicial precedent. And these are longstanding uh, considerations. It's one of the most difficult parts of a judge's job uh, for most judges is really grappling with what to do with a precedent that's at odds with one's own reading of the law. I'd say we need to take both parts of that opinion seriously. And I say, looking forward, it's true that, say, with 14th Amendment privacy, uh, Justice Alito's analysis in Dobbs would be very similar as it was when he was there for the Obergefell case on same-sex marriage. But the stare decisis factors could play out very, very differently in a future case, assuming a future case ever happens. And I'd say, and this is what I was calling for in that Wall Street Journal op-ed, I think we do need to take very seriously both parts of that opinion, both the constitutional analysis and the stare decisis analysis, and also recognize that justices will disagree over how much weight to give the stare decisis factors. Justice Thomas famously is the, the, is the, the justice on the court who's least patient with uh, stare decisis or has the, sort of the, puts the least weight on precedents that he thinks are wrongly decided. Uh, and so it's no surprise that he wrote this concurrence in Dobbs. I also think it's no surprise that no other justice joined it. Yeah. Uh, justice Alito didn't put, didn't include it in his own opinion for the court. No other justice joined it. So we'll see. Now I want to concede, I think for Griswold, that's going to be a, a tougher case. It does seem a lot more like Dobbs mm-hmm. in, in the stare decisis factors. What about Lawrence, Lawrence v. Texas, about uh, criminalizing sodomy, private consensual sex? Same. It's a lot, it's a, a lot, lot closer. Uh, it's not exactly the same, nor is Griswold, because in this, this fact, in this case, the Dobbs case, the justices really emphasized that what sets Dobbs, Planned Parenthood, Roe apart from other cases is the fact that there are two human lives at stake and not just one. Something I've reflected on a lot through the year, I wrote a piece for commentary about this, really thinking through how abortion became such a, a, a difficult issue for the court's constitutional analysis over decades, having real ripple effects through every aspect 
of, of our judicial process all the way to the confirmation or non-confirmation of justices, yeah. all the way to presidential elections. We, I think we all understand that abortion has been unlike anything the Supreme Court has grappled with in the last 50 years. And I think that'll be important going forward as well, but, but time will tell. And I know that's not a great reassurance for no. folks who are, are strong believers in the other precedents. Okay, so I'm sure that we agree on on this, but we may disagree on the on the second part. Clearly, the court there's been a lot of commentary about how the court has ignored public opinion in some of the decisions, and I think we would agree that the court is not required to follow public opinion in the determination of what's in the Constitution. Correct? I mean, that is not its role. On the other hand, you know, there is the long-standing tradition that the court does, you know, keep an eye on what happens in elections, what happens in the real world. And I guess the question is, how do you balance that out? Is that part of the distinction you're making between their willingness to overturn Roe versus Wade and their unwillingness to throw out other cases because that would just be too unpopular or it would be too disruptive? I mean, the, I mean, you know, when a, when a judge is sitting there, is he or she looking at a case in the isolation of the Constitution or to what extent should they weigh the level of societal disruption by making the quote unquote right decision? Did they, did they make that clear? Do they balance that out? Because one's formal, which is we only read the words in the Constitution and we just decide however the chips may fall. But in the real world, justices do look over their own shoulder and they are cognizant of the impact on society. Is that correct? I mean, how do they balance those out? Sure. Judges live in the real world, and they are part of a government that must govern in the real world. I'm sure every judge is different. They approach it differently. Um, in terms of how I would strike this balance, if I were suddenly a judge, or God help us all, a justice, mm-hmm. I think it's important to remember that the Supreme Court is, a, is our Supreme Court in a Republican government, in small r Republican government. Ultimately, ours is a government of the people. It's not a government of a, of a juristocracy. It's not a, a government of a monarchy. And I think the court needs to really understand what that means in practice. And here's what I think it means. First, as, as you mentioned, I do think it means treading lightly around precedent, trying to overturn precedent slowly over time, uh, when only when necessary, and also with an eye to, to, to respecting uh, longstanding institutions that may have, uh, have arisen over time. Now, of course, when a constitutional provision is clear, against a precedent or against an institution, well then sure, the courts have to do the hard work of, of pushing back, but that should always be the last resort, not the first. But also, and I think this is very, very important, and this goes all the way back to the thought of Alexander Hamilton when he was writing in defense of the federal judiciary at the constitutional uh, ratification process. It's important for judges to strike down laws only as a last resort, mm. to give every benefit of the doubt to the constitutionality of a law, either by interpreting that law to avoid a constitutional problem, that's really the key thing, but really only strike down a law when absolutely necessary. And that way you allow the political process to have uh, its, its maximum legitimate effect in a republic that is still a republic under a rule of law. So that's how I think you strike the balance um, but again, that's very easy to say sort of in, 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 
in, in, in platitudes. It's very hard to apply in practice. Well, let's talk about a law they did strike down um, since we started off talking about the mass shooting yesterday. The one of, one of the court's rulings that was obviously quite consequential, overshadowed the next day by Dobbs, was uh, uh, the court's decision to limit the way that states could restrict concealed carrying of guns outside the home. They established that, in fact, that was a constitutional right. I guess the question is, should we see this as a narrow ruling about a restrictive law about concealed carry in the state of New York, or has the court created a new standard for review that would make it harder for the courts to uphold a lot of local regulations on things like assault weapons and high-capacity magazines? How do you read that decision? Yeah, and again, thinking back to our last conversation, I mean, this is a very hard issue, and it's one where I'm, I'm, I too, am a little wary of the courts going too far in striking down laws. I think one important thing to keep in mind about the New York case that was just decided is it's actually narrower than I think a lot of the coverage led on. It wasn't even a case about concealed carry in general. What was really at the core of the court's analysis, and the court emphasized this, and, and I spotted this at, at oral argument, I think it was in de- around December um, when the justices were thinking about this case, what was really fatal to the New York statute was the fact that it left immense discretion in the hands of the licensing officials. It wasn't one of these things where an applicant would file an application, and if you checked all the right boxes, you were automatically entitled to your license. No, what set this, stat- this state statute apart, and there are only maybe five other states that have statutes like this, is that even if you sort of met all the qualifications in general, the licensor still had some lingering discretion not to grant the license. And that really troubled the justices in the same way that I think a lot of, of administrative discretion troubles the justices. But it was that feature that really was seen as incompatible with the Second Amendment right. So this decision out of New York doesn't automatically cancel out state statutes that restrict uh, licenses to, to concealed carry outside of the home. A number of those states, many of those states, their laws are still intact. And my guess is New York statute will be uh, amended to look a lot like those other states. You're right to ask, what does this mean for other circumstances, other either types of weapons, other accompaniments to the weapons, and also questions about what people can get licenses to carry these weapons. Justice Scalia's opinion in the original Heller case emphasized that just because the Second Amendment does protect a right to keep and bear arms for individuals, that doesn't give you a right to any weapon, nor does it create sort of an unlimited right of felons or uniquely dangerous people to carry these weapons. I hope the courts are mindful of those limitations going forward. I wasn't worried about the New York case as much, but I'll be interested to see what cases the court grants next. Okay, so a little bit of a wonk warning here. As somebody that has studied the administrative state extensively, um, I think you probably recognize that West Virginia versus the EPA was a really major decision. But I want to get a sense of how sweeping it was, because I I know you were on another podcast saying that uh, a lot of progressives are freaking out about the ruling, which imposed constraints on uh, the power of the EPA to limit carbon emissions. I know the one uh, New York Times columnist uh, said it's being portrayed as an existential setback, this major blow to uh, decarbonization and global climate ambition. So tell me what you think this decision did and did not do. How did it limit the authority of the EPA? And does it mean that the federal government is not going to have the power to address these issues in the future? 
so it is a huge, the decision's a huge deal. Like I, I don't want to sugarcoat yeah, it. It's yeah, a huge, yeah. huge deal. And it struck down in effect, what was one of the signature regulatory policies of President Obama's administration in his second term, and which was, as President Biden has emphasized over and over again, a central priority of this administration, which would be comprehensive climate regulation, not limited on individual power plants and those sorts of things, but really uh, empowering the EPA to have a significant role in setting the national mix of energy resources. Uh, there are other agencies that are involved in that, but the, but the EPA has been front and center since the Obama administration. And what the Supreme Court said was the Clean Air Act cannot reasonably be read as granting the EPA the power to set emissions targets through not just individual power plants, but the actual sort of sources of energy that are used from state to state. It was in the Obama administration, it was called the Clean Power Program. Yeah. And it was a huge, huge deal, as its proponents and critics alike said at the time. It's been under a cloud of legal doubt from the very beginning in litigation. And the Supreme Court said, we just cannot reasonably read the Clean Air Act this way. It doesn't end all climate regulation. You'll still see regulation of power plants and manufacturing. You'll still see auto regulations, of course, and others those weren't touched by this decision. But this does deal a major setback to advocates for for federal uh, reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. The case, for what it's worth, also has, I think, significant ramifications for administrative law generally, but I won't bore your uh, your listeners with that quite yet. This all started with, with Obama telling Congress, go legislate, and if you don't do that, we'll take care of it ourselves, right? Which guaranteed yeah. that there would never actually be any legislation. So I guess this is part of this, this long-term problem, right, of... Congress essentially uh, ceding power to the administrative state. How far is this court willing to go to dial that back? Since we've seen, as you point out, we have an aggressive, confident, conservative majority. Are they going to revisit, you know, something like the Chevron rule? Well, let me tell you, Charlie, you know, when Dobbs was decided, you saw a flurry of articles yeah. Uh, sort of questioning whether John Roberts was still the chief justice. Right, right. Uh, on the last day of the court's work, they decide two major administrative law cases, and Chief Justice Roberts writes the opinion for both of them. This really is, I think, his core issue. It has been for some time, and not just pushing back against Democratic administrations. Recall that Chief Justice Roberts wrote the majority opinion striking down the Trump administration's attempt to add the citizenship question to the census. Roberts has been at the heart of these administrative law issues over and over again. He's been very clearly worried about the state of government, which puts administrative agencies at the heart of everything, and then provides for sort of radical destabilizing turns from one administration to the next, as each new presidency sort of comes in and overhauls uh, all the laws that govern us. Roberts clearly doesn't think this is a w any way to run a country. And he's been sort of at the heart of the court's deliberations on this. Now, other justices have been very vocal on this as well. Justice Thomas, maybe more than any, has been a critic of administrative power. Justice Gorsuch as well. But when I said at the beginning of the show about the differences among conservatives, this is a place where there are going to be very important differences going forward between, say, Chief Justice Roberts and, and maybe Kavanaugh, who are worried about sort of the destabilizing effects of administration from one administration to the next, worried about that, looking for more stability in administration versus 
Gorsuch and Thomas, who really do think that broad delegations of power to the administrative agencies are often unconstitutional. Mm -hmm. That that approach would have profound effects in eliminating agencies and so on. Chief Justice Roberts has said some things in that direction, but his actual decisions have been much narrower. Um, But I think it's it's hugely important, as you said, presidents love to say, uh, if Congress won't act, I will. But I think the reverse is, is also true, that because presidents will act, because their agencies will act, Congress won't. Right. It, it drains all the energy out of Congress, and it also eliminates all the pressure on individual congressmen to actually negotiate and compromise. In fact, it creates every incentive against it. Tell me about this case that the court has decided that's going to take up in the next uh, term. This originates from North Carolina, Republicans who are challenging a state Supreme Court ruling that struck down the state's new congressional map as uh, an unconstitutional gerrymander. So they're arguing that the Constitution's elections clause, which says times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, that that means that legislatures alone have power over elections-related activities. And I don't think I need to go into great detail why people, our eyebrows have been raised, like where is the court going with this, this whole idea of the independent legislature theory? Yeah, this is a huge, huge case, to say the least. And it's important, as as you suggest, not just because of this particular case, which has to do with drawing the district maps for for congressmen in in North Carolina, but this article two of the constitution has a very similar provision for presidential elections that says that the electors shall be appointed by each state in such manner as the legislature thereof may direct. So in the last presidential election, with all the other hell we went through, uh, you saw arguments that state legislatures could not be uh, lawfully bound by, say, state courts in their administration of presidential elections. Now, I, I got to admit, this is not an issue I've studied closely, mm-hmm. but all of my instincts go against this argument for independent state legislatures. Because yes, it's true, the U.S. Constitution does place responsibility for for these election issues, first and foremost, in the state legislatures. But the U.S. Constitution didn't create the state legislatures. They're created by their own state constitutions and subject to all of the normal limits and procedures and standards of of state constitutions. And so just as, say, with the, the Clean Power Plan case we were talking about before, you know, the Supreme Court was very, very wary of an agency suddenly discovering transformative powers, especially ones that that would encroach upon the state authorities. I'm very wary of reading the U.S. Constitution to put the state constitutions and the state courts out of business on these issues. Um, I understand there could be hard cases, but I think that would be a huge overreading of the U.S. Constitution. At least that's my initial instincts. But I'm, I am a little worried about this case. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, I guess this relates to this question of, of whether or not, you know, going back to Dobbs, what had changed? Why did they decide that they were going to abandon incrementalism? And they they do seem to be um, very, very aggressive in both overturning precedents and in taking conservative positions. So you do wonder where the court is going on all of this. Do you have any sense, have some of the justices been radicalized by the political climate, by the the very partisan, very nasty tone of confirmation hearings, by protests at their homes? I mean, I, I suppose we would all like to think that they are not affected by these kinds of things, that this has no influence on them. 
but but you wonder when someone has gone through what say Kavanaugh went through um, in his confirmation process or or the the protests at their homes. Does any of this have an effect? Do you think in the context of have they been radicalized and are they willing to do things that they would have otherwise not been willing to do? I know it's an unanswerable question, so I'm just asking you to speculate. When you started asking the question <laughs> in terms of uh, just the political environment in general, my answer was going to be no. Mm-hmm. I do think the confirmation process, I mean, that you do raise a good question here. It's not as though the justices on their way to the Supreme Court encounter sort of the, the best and most appealing side of our legislative branch. No. <laughs> so I, I'm sure some of the right. calluses that develop through that process for all nominees, I'm sure it probably colors their view of legislatures, maybe not in a good way. I don't think that the justices have been radicalized by the political environment in general. I do think that the rhetoric around the court has gotten ever more sort of poisonous and and maybe the justices are just more and more adept at tuning everybody out for better and for worse. So you were on CNBC recently, and, and you know you talked about uh, you know these attacks on the court, leading to you know questions about its legitimacy. You know the argument that you know particular justices are, aren't legitimate because they're not reaching the outcomes that people would like. You suggested those attacks could lead to dangerous ideas. Which dangerous ideas were you thinking of? Well, I, I was saying this throughout last year. Uh, President Biden appointed me to his his presidential commission on the future of the Supreme Court, where we, I and 35 others, it was a big group project. Uh, we spent the year studying and debating and having hearings and, and and then writing a report on issues like court packing, court expansion, term limits for justices, and so on. And throughout that entire process, I became more and more troubled with attacks on the court's legitimacy. Uh, this is not the first time that we're, we've seen attacks on the court's legitimacy. It comes up time and time again in American history. In the 1990s, it was conservatives who uh, at First Things Magazine who were denouncing the the Supreme Court as illegitimate in the aftermath of Planned Parenthood versus Casey. Just as my instincts cut against the constitutional issue we're talking about before, instinctually, I'm just profoundly worried about these sorts of attacks on the court. Because it's one thing to say the court got a case wrong. It gets cases wrong often and, and important cases that affect a lot of people. But the Supreme Court it hasn't delegitimized itself through these things. And I haven't seen anything close to that yet, but we see more and more attacks in terms of the court's legitimacy. I think they're ratcheting up the rhetoric in favor of court packing. I think though, just as the court needs to be self-restrained and tread lightly in a republic, there's an obligation for all of us, myself included, when I punditize about the Supreme Court, to, to approach these issues you know, with a, an open mind and a, a spirit of charity uh, and not just jump to the conclusion that the latest Supreme Court decision has rendered the entire judicial branch uh, illegitimate. Okay, I so dangerous. I probably should have asked this question at the beginning of this, but how do we define legitimacy and illegitimacy? What are you talking about? Well, what happens if Americans decide the court is illegitimate? Does that mean that they figure we just don't need to listen to it? We don't need to respect it? We don't need to follow it? I mean, what exactly does you know delegitimizing the court mean? I think the court's legitimacy is best understood in the job that the Constitution gave it to do, which is to decide cases according to laws that the justices themselves aren't making up themselves, and you know, and according to facts that the justices aren't just making up themselves, right? First and foremost, their legitimacy has to be judged in terms of how well they're reading the law and faithfully and neutrally applying it. But 
from the very beginning of debates about the Supreme Court, we also see in Hamilton and others, you know, a recognition that you need not just theoretical legitimacy, you do actually need real world respect from the people themselves. And so that's why I think that point I made earlier about the justices treading lightly in striking down statutes, only doing it as a last resort, not a first resort, and really explaining themselves in terms that the people can understand, even if the people are going to disagree with them, as they will from time to time. I think that's all important. And I do worry about judges becoming so confident that they just sort of breeze past their, their, their role as part of a government for a real American people. Okay, so you've used this phrase several times that the judges need to tread somewhat lightly. Yeah. Is this court in this last session, was it treading lightly? Because that's not the way it feels. You can't judge it in terms of a case or a week or even a year, right? Ultimately, the court has independence that's going to put it in a position to, to disagree with the people themselves from time to time. And I'm not sure that that's the accurate way of describing what happened in Dobbs. After all, they did sustain a yeah. statute. Um, but I think that over time, over years, I would hope that the court errs on the side of deference to, uh, to the people through their political institutions. Again, not abdicating their role as judges, but, but giving the benefit of the doubt to statutes and to precedents before striking them down. Adam White, thank you so much for coming on today and talking about all of these issues. This was a heavy lift, I know. And I think I have a feeling that we're going to be um, writing and thinking about uh, what this court uh, just did for years, trying to figure it out. And obviously, there's going to be um, you know, perhaps even decades of litigation that flows out of the decisions that were made in the last several weeks. So Adam White, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. Thanks, Charlie, and happy Independence Day. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow, and we'll do this all over again.